If we please turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 10 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 22. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 957 and 958. And just to recap where we are, remember 1 Corinthians is a book written to a worldly church that had many, many problems, uh, many divisions in the, in the church, many of the problems that you see uh, in a worldly society were in this church. And the specific context of what we're looking at now, remember, is in the context of chapters 8 through 10, had to do with a question that the uh, Corinthian church asked Paul about whether it was okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And idolatry was rampant in first century Corinth. And there were idols all over the place, and there was meat sacrificed to these idols. Now, of course, these idols are not living. They don't eat the meat, so you had to do something with the meat. So the meat was often sold in the meat markets. And this question was whether or not to eat this meat. And it caused divisions in the early church. And Paul's response that we saw in chapter 8 was really to a bigger issue than the food. It was how we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul said that it's more important principle was not to do anything that could cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble in sin. And Paul ends chapter 8 by saying, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. And this leads then into chapter 9, where we see the example of Paul and Barnabas of giving up legitimate lawful rights that they have for the good of the church, for the sake of the gospel, to propagate the gospel. And then in the first 13 chapters, or 13 13 verses of chapter 10, Paul then gives them a warning against idolatry. And he uses the example of the Israelites in the desert wanderings, who because of their disobedience, because of their sin, because of their idolatry, they suffered judgment. They suffered God's rejection. And then verse 13, which we looked at last week, that one verse, this beautiful promise that God will not allow his people to be tempted beyond their ability but will provide a way of escape, a way to keep them from sinning, to remain faithful and obedient to God. Well, in this section that we're looking at today, Paul ties all this together, these warnings against idolatry and the severe danger that they will face with idolatry with this original question of eating meat sacrificed to idols. So Paul is applying these principles that we uh, discussed in the first part of this chapter to the Corinthian-specific situation. And although our specific situation that we face in 21st century America will look different, it's not the same, but we can still apply these same principles to our own situation. So that's what we'll look at today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. Brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one in body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. 
You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your spirit to be with us. I pray for your spirit to be with me, to speak through me, to give me your words, to speak your truth. Father, I pray that each one of us here, that you will open our hearts and minds to hear from you. Our hearts are dull. I know that we're sleepy, losing an hour of sleep. But Father, awaken us, quicken us. Have us hear from you. Have us have a divine encounter with you. And I pray, Father, for each one of us to be conformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Many people today, especially in our modern technological age, dismiss the idea of evil spirits or of demons. They they think this is a superstition belonging to a simpler, a less enlightened time. Even modern Christians, when we read the gospel accounts and we hear of Jesus casting out demons, oftentimes we attribute these stories to, to a simple people just trying to make sense of something they don't understand. They don't, they don't understand mental illness. They didn't understand. They didn't have a, a medical or scientific understanding. So it was the way that they tried to explain. They were doing the best they can. But Scripture clearly affirms the existence of malevolent, intelligent Spiritual beings that oppose God, that oppose us. And while some Christian traditions will place far too much emphasis on Satan and demons, often attempting to blame our, our sinfulness or the, the effects of the fall on demons, they, they, they see a demon under every rock. I think our tradition errors on the opposite side. We tend to minimize the existence and the actions of demons. Uh, we want to be more in line with the, the, the secular culture. We don't, we don't want to seem to be scary and, and, and you know, those, those wild Christians that are talking about spiritual warfare. We want to be much more in control. Now, friends, on several occasions during my years in ministry, I have seen very clear and very definite effects of demonic activities. And it's, to, to say the least, chilling. I can tell you things I've seen. Lynn has seen things with me that there is no other explanation than the demonic. Now, it's not common. I don't see it all the time, but I have seen it. And sometimes this activity is overt, like the time that I'm I'm thinking now. But much more often, much more often it is covert. But either way, it's just as real. And it is just as dangerous. And there are things that we do either intentional or unintentional, that make us more susceptible, that make us more vulnerable to these demonic influence, this demonic activity. And even Christians, don't think that just because you are a Christian, you are completely immune to to demonic attack. The most chilling demonic attack that I've ever experienced was against a strong believer, a believer who, because of history and past decisions and natural disposition, had really opened her up to this type of attack. And I like to use this analogy that will will kind of help us to understand the spiritual war. I compare the spiritual war with the war of microbiology. We all know that at this very moment, in this room, each one of us is surrounded by countless bacteria and viruses and microorganisms, all capable of making us sick, many capable of killing us. 
But for the majority of us, our immune systems protect us against all these microorganisms. And we're completely unaware of the danger that is in this room with us because our immune system just knocks it out without us even knowing it. <clears throat> but there are some people, some people who have weakened immune systems for various reasons, and they are vulnerable. They have to be very careful. They have to make sure they don't come into crowds. They stay away from people because they are vulnerable to get sick, which would be completely harmless to the rest of us. Well, the same truth is in the spiritual realm. Each one of us, we are surrounded by demonic forces that would like to hurt us, but due to common grace, every person, <clears throat> believer and unbeliever, we have a spiritual immune system that protects us. And just like certain actions, such as poor nutrition or lack of exercise or vitamin deficiency can weaken our physical immune system, make us vulnerable to illness, certain activities can weaken our spiritual immune system, making us vulnerable to these spiritual maladies. And the worst part is that we are completely blind to this danger. And in ignorance, we do things that cause us spiritual harm and things that dishonor our Lord. And this is the warning that Paul brings up with respect to the issue of idolatry and with respect to the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this passage verse by verse to understand Paul's argument. Paul is giving an argument in these verses. And we're going to look at his conclusion. And then we're going to draw some applications based on these spiritual principles articulated relating to our own current situation, our own current spiritual temptations. So let's dive right in. Verse 14. Verse 14 is really the, the summary of this entire purpose. It's flee from idolatry. Paul is saying flee from idolatry. And if you remember last week when we were talking, fleeing is the proper response to a temptation. We don't stand, we don't try to withstand the temptation. We don't indulge the temptation. We don't rationalize the temptation. We flee from the temptation. We get away from the temptation. And this is the takeaway of the entire passage. This is Paul's goal to the Corinthians. This is the Holy Spirit's message to us. It's one. Flee from idolatry. It is that dangerous. We should just get out and get away from it. Now notice here that Paul addresses the Corinthians as my beloved. And this is an address of endearment. See, Paul truly loves the Corinthian church. And his warning here is, is not harsh. It's, it's not that they will not have fun. Paul is not trying to be a killjoy to these people. Paul is giving this command out of love. Paul knows that fleeing idolatry not only glorifies God, but is in their spiritual best interest to flee idolatry. And my friends, we desperately need to escape the modern lie, the, the, the satanic lie that says the only way that we can be loving is to be always affirming someone, never confronting them. And this lie is that the only way that we can, that we can love someone is to build them up, tell them what they want to hear, make them feel good about themselves. And yes, that is appropriate many times. But sometimes love requires confrontation, especially confrontation of sin. Sometimes it requires telling a person that they are wrong, telling them that they are in danger, telling them that they must change. This oftentimes is loving. And this is what Paul is doing. He commands his beloved Corinthian church to flee from idolatry. In verse 15, Paul says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. 
And Paul here lets them know that he is now giving them a logical argument to back up his command. He's not just saying this because I'm the boss. You have to do what I say. He gives them logical rationale for the command. And he invites them to follow the argument and to judge for themselves as to whether he has logically proved the command he has given them to flee from idolatry. See, Paul can simply use his apostolic authority. He was an apostle. He could have just said, just do it. He could have used the authority of the Jerusalem council. Just do it. Thus saith the Lord. But he doesn't do this. Paul logically explains his rationale to the Corinthians. And he did this in each of his responses so far that we've seen. Instead of giving them a direct yes or no, he gives them principles. He gives them logical arguments so they can handle not just this one question, but they can handle other situations that, as they occur. And this is really what we do in preaching as we apply scripture. We look at the principles in scripture and apply them to situations beyond the specific context. So verse 16 starts this logical argument. And he says in verse 16, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So the cup of blessing and the bread that Paul mentions here, this is a reference to the Lord's Supper. The argument is asking them that when they celebrate the Lord's Supper, is this no different than any other meal? And the expected, the expected answer is, of course it's different. This is not the same. And as Reformed Christians, we reject the idea that the Lord's Supper is simply a memorial meal we understand that there is a real spiritual aspect to the Lord's Supper. We would say that there's a real spiritual presence of Christ, not a physical presence, but a spiritual presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. And Paul is saying in this verse that when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are participating in the body and blood of Christ. We are communing with Christ himself. Christ is spiritually present in the sacrament. And we are in communion with him when we partake of the sacrament. And this is why the Lord's Supper is called communion. We are in communion with Christ. And there is a real spiritual benefit from this communion with Christ in the sacrament. And this is why we consider communion to be a means of grace. See, God conveys real, tangible grace to us in the Lord's Supper. See, at conversion, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are born again. We are united to Christ. And this union with Christ signifies that our sins were punished in Christ on the cross. That our old sinful nature was actually buried with Christ. And we were raised anew with Christ. And we have a new nature. And our union with Christ signifies that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the sins of us. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, the one with whom we are united. And because of our union with Christ, we are declared not guilty in God's sight because he sees Christ. We are forever justified. We are eternally secure in the grip of his grace because of our union with Christ. And through our union with Christ, we receive all the blessings of the Christian life. We receive regeneration. We receive justification, adoption, sanctification. And one day we will receive glorification. As a matter of fact, Paul speaks to it in the past tense as if it already happened. That is how, how certain our glorification is. And it's all because of our union with Christ. And while this union with Christ is permanent, it can never be lost. Our awareness 
of this union, our enjoyment of this union, our ability to be fruitful in our Christian walk because of this union can and is greatly diminished through sin and through lack of the spiritual means of grace. And we've talked about this in previous sermons. If we neglect the means of grace, we forfeit the joy, we forfeit the comfort, we forfeit the usefulness that we have in the Christian life. And the Lord's Supper, along with the other means of grace, baptism, worship, the prayer, God's Word, reading God's Word, studying God's Word, God's Word preached, these are all means of grace. And they increase our worship, our awareness of, our enjoyment of, and our fruitfulness in our union with Christ. And the Lord's Supper is not only another meal. It is not simply a memorial of Christ's death. The Lord's Supper conveys real grace. It conveys real and powerful spiritual benefit. And not only is this benefit on the, on the vertical plane, meaning between us and God, our relationship with Christ, it's also on the horizontal plane, our relationship with one another. See, that is, the, that is that the Lord's Supper strengthens the bonds we have as a church, the bonds we have as God's people. And we see this in verse 17. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many, we are many people, we are one body, because we all partake of the one bread. And this signifies the unity that we have amongst God's people. This is why we don't uh, um, have private communion. It is a corporate meal. It is to be celebrated together with God's people, signifying our unity in Christ. And every few months, usually on a, on a Thursday afternoon, about seven or eight of us will go to the home of Gwen Baldwin. And many of you who are new members here don't even know who Gwen Baldwin is. She was a long-term member here. She is, uh, right now, she is not able to physically uh, come and worship with us. But she, she taught Sunday school. She, she taught the, the women's, I mean, the women's uh, uh, Bible study. And so for a few years, we have been going to her house, taking a service to her house. Uh, we're basically bringing the church to her. The, she can't come to the church, so the church goes to her. We have a full service. We have a call to worship, confessions. We sing hymns. Uh, we have a, a shortened uh, sermon. We have the Lord's Supper. And we're really only limited how many can fit into her living room. And, and we've done this with others. Uh, John Sorensen, uh, when he was uh, uh, just a few, you know, right when he was um, close to going to glory, Several of us, I think we, st- we, we, we had about 20 of us in his uh, living room. Uh, Fred Wilder, again, we went to his nursing home, and we brought the church. We had the Lord's Supper. It's not me going and giving communion one-on-one. No, it is the body. We are united. We are one family. And this unity that we have in God's people is a unity in Christ. It's nothing else. It's not, it's not hobbies. Uh, we look different. We have different dispositions. But what we have our unity is in Christ. Christ alone is our Savior. We have one Savior. We have one hope. There is one way. There is one door to eternal life. And that is Christ alone. And that is what binds us together. And all this is represented through the one bread in verse 17. So verses 16 and 17, Paul uses the example of the Lord's Supper to show that there is a real spiritual significance to eating this meal. Next we look at verse 18. Paul then goes, instead of looking at the New Testament sacrament, he looks back at the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's the Old Testament sacrificial meal. 
Specifically, he's looking at the, the meat that was sacrificed. And it was sacrificed not to an idol, but it was sacrificed to Yahweh. It was sacrificed to the living God. And Paul is, is talking specifically about the peace offering that was eaten by the, the person making the sacrifice, as we saw in, in, in Leviticus chapter 7. So Paul says in, in verse 18, he says, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. So just like Paul shows the, the real, true, spiritual significance of the Lord's Supper, in this verse he shows the real, true, spiritual significance of the Old Testament sacrifices to Yahweh. And the significance is the same. Those who eat the sacrifice participate in what is symbolized by the sacrifice. And there's also here a connection, a connection between the Old Testament sacrifice and the New Testament sacraments. And see, the, the sacrifices, they had no merit in and of themselves. The author of Hebrew tells us, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, they couldn't take away sins. They had no merit in and of themselves. What the Old Testament sacrifices were, they were simply pointers, pointers forward, pointers to the true sacrifice, that pointers to the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice that was Jesus Christ, once and for all, to atone for the sins of his people. What was impossible for the, the blood of bulls and goats to accomplish was accomplished by the blood of Christ, as we sang, was accomplished by Emmanuel's blood. And where the sacrifices of the Old Testament look forward to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper looks backward. What we celebrate as New Testament church looks back on Christ's sacrifice, the very same sacrifice. So the substance of both the, the Old Testament sacrifice and the New Testament sacrament are the same. It is Christ. Both are pointing to Christ. And there are warnings associated with both of these sacrifices, handling, wrongly handling the sacrament and the sacrifice. Leviticus 7, 8 speaks of the judgment of if the food was not eaten as prescribed. There was judgment that came upon the person who ate the food. In the very next chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are told that judgment comes from wrongly handling the Lord's Supper. And that's why whenever I do the Lord's Supper this evening, if you come back this evening, I always fence the table to make sure that we don't inadvertently incur judgment by handling the sacrament wrongly. And in both these examples, the Lord's Supper and the Levitical sacrifices, Paul is showing a real spiritual significance associated with eating, with eating the sacrifice, with eating the sacrament. And Paul is implying in, in his argument that just as there is a spiritual significance with eating the sacrament and eating the Levitical sacrifice, there is also a spiritual significance with eating the food that is sacrificed to idols. Now, in verse 19, Paul anticipates an argument. You might be thinking the same thing right now. The Corinthians, yeah, they would agree that there's a real spiritual significance with the Old Testament sacrifices and with the, the New Testament sacraments. But that's only because both of these are sacraments to the true living God, to the real God. But the Corinthians know that there's a big difference between a sacrifice made to the real living God and a sacrifice made to an idol. They know that an idol is nothing. It is just a worthless hunk of metal. It's, a, it's or stone or of, or of wood. So Paul's argument breaks down, so they would say. But Paul in verse 19 says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? And Paul answers this, no, of course not, in verse 20. 
There is only one true living God. There is only, there's, there's not a pantheon. There's not a whole bunch of gods and that we just happen to worship one of them and they're competing with one another. No, there is only one God. Paul is very clear on this point. But here's where he shifts things. Here's where he gives new arguments, new information. This is where he kind of gives a twist to their argument. See, just because these idols are not real gods does not mean that there is no spiritual significance to these pagan sacrifices. There certainly is. See, while there is no real false gods behind the idolatry, behind this false worship are real, intelligent, and malevolent spiritual forces. There are demonic forces, and these forces are dangerous, and they should not be messed around with. And these sacrifices have real spiritual significance. And what they do is they open the worshiper up, the worshiper up to the influence of the demons. So going back to the immune system analogy, participating in idolatry and in idolatrous sacrifices weakens the spiritual immune system. It makes the worshiper susceptible to this type of demonic influence. And this is especially true for unbelievers. It is especially true for, for weak believers, people who, have, who are less mature. They, they, they are more open to this demonic activity by certain activities. But it's not just a danger to the individual. Of course there is a danger. And this, this type of a syncretism, which means combining the things that are Christian with the things that are pagan, participating with the things of demons and the things of God, is more than just harmful. Of course it is harmful, but it also insults God. It also dishonors God. Paul says in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And why not? Because God is holy. And his people, as his people, we are called to be holy. This means we cannot participate with, we cannot associate with, we cannot honor both demons and God. And when we do this, which we do all the time, we provoke God's divine jealousy, and rightfully so. See, God will not share his glory with anything, especially not with demons. He will not allow his people, those souls that were purchased at the cost of his precious blood of his son, those who are united to his sons, those who are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, he will not allow us to associate with demons. See, demons are his eternal enemies. And they are such, they should be our eternal enemies. There can be no peace between us and demons. Let me give you kind of a, kind of a silly illustration. But just, just assume you were, say, the mayor of a, of a town. And you had this political enemy who would do whatever he could to make you look bad. And he wanted you to fail because he wanted to take your place. And he would constantly, every time he did something, he would do something to undermine your authority. He would claim, you're not the legitimate mayor. You shouldn't really even be there. Now, just think of this as your, this is a person. Would this be okay if your wife was friends with this person? Would even dine with this person? And your wife said, well, I know you're the true mayor. I don't believe anything, but I, you know, I just want to eat his food. Would you be okay with that? Of course you wouldn't be okay with that. If it's your enemy, it should be your wife's enemy. I know if you oppose my wife, you would be opposing me. There would be no way to break it. There is a, there is a unity there. So how much more with, as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, should we be with our husband, our spiritual husband, Christ? 
See, if we are Christians, we must have the same mind about Christ's enemies. If you oppose our Lord, you oppose me. And demons are the eternal mortal enemies of God, which means there can be no peace. There can be no association for Christians with demons. There is no middle ground. Now, I need to make an important distinction here. In truth, all unbelievers are are enemies with God. They are in outright rebellion against God. In the final analysis, an unbeliever hates a holy God. But this does not mean that they are our enemies. No. These unbelievers are redeemable. In fact, that is our job. That's the whole purpose of the church. We are to show them the way of redemption. We are to proclaim to them the gospel. We are to show them the only way that they can go from being God's enemies to becoming God's beloved children. See, we do not see unbelievers as the enemies. Unbelievers are victims. They are captives. They are our mission field. And by the power of the gospel, we are to set these captives free. We are to love the unbeliever, even if they hate us. We are to only work for their good in all areas, physically and spiritually. But most importantly, we should show them the gospel, lead them to salvation. Because any other good that we do for them is only temporary if they do not embrace the gospel. This is our attitude toward the unbeliever. But this is not our attitude toward Satan and the demons. See, unbelievers are redeemable. Satan and demons are irredeemable. There can be no peace between Satan and demons and God. There can be no truce. There is eternal hatred. There is eternal enmity between them and us. We can never compromise and we can never participate in the things with demons. So what does this mean for us? What, what, is, what do we mean in, in the 21st century church? How do we apply this text to our specific situation? Well, here's just three brief applications. The first application, recognize the reality of spiritual warfare. Recognize the reality of demonic activity. See, straight, Satan's strategy in our day is stealth. Satan operates covertly. And it's impossible to win a war. It's impossible to survive in a war if you don't even know you're in a war. And worse still, what Satan does is he tricks us to think, as he attacks us, to make us look like someone else is attacking us, making us that other people are the enemy. He tricks us to think that our enemy is our friend, our enemy is our spouse, our enemy is our family, our enemy is our fellow church members. Or our enemy is that poor, wretched soul on the way to hell. No, all of these are victims of Satan's attacks. We do have a real enemy. He is our spiritual enemy, and we must recognize this real enemy. This is our first application. There is a real enemy. We must recognize this real enemy. The second application. Our second application is to recognize that there are certain things, certain places, certain people, certain activities that weaken our spiritual immune system, that make us more susceptible to demonic influence. And some of these things are beyond our control. Some of these things are are, we're kind of born with our temperament, our disposition. Uh, Certain forms of mental illness will open us up to these type of attacks. But others are completely in our control, and we should flee those things that are in our control. Some of these factors are overt idolatry, such as we're reading about here, food sacrificed to idols. But there are other things 
certain forms of the occult, being being involved in the occult. I remember when I was in high school, there were people who thought that it would be funny to do be devil worshippers. They really weren't thinking it serious. They didn't think they believed they were drawing little pentagrams. This is serious. This is the cult. You don't mess around with this stuff. There are neo-pagan religions, such as Wiccan, uh, again, that open you up to spiritual forces. And it may, not, it may not be that you're doing evil things, but what they do is they pull you away from Christ. That's all it needs to do. Satan doesn't necessarily need you to become a mass murderer. He just needs you to be an unbeliever. He'll have all eternity to have fun with you. Certain types of music, certain types of mind-altering drugs, they all weaken our spiritual immune system and make us open to the spiritual attack. But perhaps the most common, perhaps the most dangerous the one that is going to really, you know, I don't, I don't see many of you guys involved in the occult, but the thing that I think is going to affect us most here in our 21st century America is a worldview, a anti-biblical worldview that is so prevalent in our secular culture. It's a worldview that denies objective reality, a, a worldview that denies morality beyond self. A worldview that insists that I define what is true for me. It insists on personal autonomy. See, this worldview is, is really built on and is propagated by, based on Satan's first lie. Remember Satan's first lie? You can be like God. And that's what Satan whispers in each one of our ears. And we believe it. And that is what our culture believes. That is what we see. And that will draw you away. Again, you don't need to be sacrificing chickens and, 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 and being a mass murderer. All you need to do is be away from God. And there are a lot of good people doing good things who are doing it based on themselves. I did it my way. They are honoring. They become their own God. And all of this draws us away. All of this is dangerous. All of this opens and gets satanic, demonic hooks into us. All of these things must be avoided. We must flee from these things. It is not only dangerous to our souls, it also dishonors our God, our Lord and Savior. So this is our second application. Our final application is that we must understand that we can never have peace. There can never be peace between the things of God and the things of Satan, the demonic realm. We must never participate with demons. Even if that certain activity we see is simply as a, a tradition, uh, things that we don't think is real. For example, if you're invited to a, to a, by a Hindu friend or a neo-pagan friend to be involved in some of their nature worship or worship service or a wedding ceremony, we must not do these things. We must use discernment to be exercised on this, this invitation. It doesn't mean that you don't go, but you don't participate. You cannot participate. And if you feel any hesitation... If you think it's wrong, don't even go. Stay away from it. You should listen to this warning and not attend. You must understand this type of worship is not neutral. It opposes Christ. It opposes God. Again, in certain cases, you might be able to observe, but never, we must never participate. It's never appropriate for a Christian to, to uh, participate in a pagan religious festival. This is dangerous for our own soul, and it dishonors Christ. So this is really the, the, the way we look at it. The, the, the bottom line of all this is we are to flee idolatry. We are to recognize idolatry. We are to recognize that behind the idolatry are evil forces, demonic forces that oppose God, that oppose us. That is what we see. We have to understand that it is serious. It's not just a, a matter of preference. It's not neutral. It is serious. It, it, it can harm our souls and it can dishonor God. So we are to flee idolatries. We are not to participate with demons. We are to honor the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do 
ask you for protection. Father, the, the, these demonic influences around us, and, and they're not what we, we think. They're not heads spinning around and, and uh, uh, heads roll, uh, eyes rolling back in, in the heads. These are things that look good. They are things that look tempting. They are things that look like they're going to make us. They are oftentimes in Christian churches. The prosperity gospel, for example, that tells you that God wants you to be happy, wealthy, and wise. Lord, we know that that comes from Satan. It does not come from you. Lord, we pray that you will protect your people. Give us discernment. Give us wisdom. And give us the ability to say no, to stand up and to trust in relying on your gospel alone. And that you will be pleased. You will be glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name.